Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I'm really happy to be able to give you some more comments. These are really short ones, so uh, they're, they're uh, not going to take up too much time for us. But this is uh, Dear JBL. I just uh, want to tell you I eagerly await for every new episode. I don't have as much time to read. Um that I'd like to have. But that being said, I do love your shared insights into these great books. Keep up the great fight and uh, with much love and uh, so-and-so. I won't repeat his real name there, uh, but thank you for that comment. Here's another one. It says, thank you, JBL, for making the inaccessible accessible. <laughs> so so I think that's uh, I think that's another nice comment. So, so uh, people are... Uh, you know, sending in comments, so I love it, so uh, please keep doing that. Well, in our last podcast, we did begin discussing how Marlowe learns about Kurtz. And uh, as we go through this, we're also learning uh, how Marlowe is developing his own thoughts about Kurtz. Hasn't even met the man yet, and yet he's, he's developing his own thoughts about him. So for today's program, I want to continue our discussion of, let's say, Marlowe's education on Kurtz. Now, to help me do this today, uh, my recently formed men's panel is back with me in the studio. So, welcome back, Parker. Thank you, Mr. Leap. Good to have you here. Welcome back, Gabe. Thanks. It's Glad always to good back. to have you here. Yeah. So, let's just jump right back into our discussion from, uh, from the last program. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, we were, we were talking about the mustached man. I think we're, we're on page 38. And uh, I, I do love it. I, I do love Kurtz. Uh, uh, it, the mystery that, that uh, Conrad puts about him, maybe that's the way I should say it. I love the way Conrad builds this mystery about Kurtz. But I also love the way Conrad does make um, these, uh, these great statements about these characters. So here's this mustached man that we talked about last time. And, of course, uh, we had just seen... Uh, part of the, uh, you know, the, the, the station, you know, the Calico uh, house or where they kept the goods, you know, that like the, uh, seems like they were, they were native uh, artifacts go up in flames. And then we know the mustache man beat the daylights out of one of the, the, local, the local people and the, the, uh, the poor black guy was just moaning. And then, uh, of course, uh, you know, Kurtz meets him and then... Uh, uh, here's what Kurt says about him. He says, I let him run on this paper mache Mephistopheles. <laughs> so, so if, if any of you know the story of Faustus, and that's something that, that say, uh, we had to understand somewhat about when I was a literature student. I never really liked it that much uh, because Mephistopheles is really Satan the devil. I mean, he's, he's an evil spirit. And so, so you can see that that as uh, Marlowe learns more about 
Kurtz, he's also learning more about the station and the people that run the station. And here he says this, uh, this paper mache Mistopheles or the mustached man. And he doesn't even tell us his name. He didn't even bother to even find his name. And so, so, uh, uh, you know, he, he's really not impressed with this guy at all. He said, I let him run on, and it seemed to me that if I tried, I could poke my forefinger through him and would find nothing inside but a little loose dirt, maybe. <laughs> he don't, you see, uh, uh, had been planning to be an assistant manager by and by under the present man, and I could see that coming out of that, Kurtz had upset them both, not a little. He was precipitately, and I did not try to stop him. I had my shoulders against the wreck of my steamer, hauled up on the slope like a carcass of some big river animal. The smell of mud, a primeval primeval mud, uh, was in my nostrils. The high stillness of primeval forest was before my eyes. There were shiny patches on the Black Creek. The moon had spread over every thin layer of silver, over the rank grass, over the mud, upon the wall of matted vegetation standing higher than the wall of a temple. Over the great river I could see through a somber gap, gap glittering, glittering as it flowed broadly without a murmur. All this was great, expectant, mute, while the man jabbered about himself. I wondered whether the stillness on his face of the immensity looking at us two were meant as an appeal or as a menace. And so, so here's Conrad giving this great description of the land. And this guy's just jabbering. He's just talking away, and he's not even paying attention. And uh, um, he goes on, to, again, now Marlowe's kind of thinking and conjecturing here. He says, what were we who had strayed in here? Could we handle that dumb thing, or would it handle us? I felt how big, how confoundedly big was the thing that couldn't talk, and perhaps was deaf as well. What was in there? And he's talking about the darkness. He's talking about the darkness of, you know, the wild continent. He said, uh, I could see a little ivory coming out from there, and I had Kurtz was in there. I had heard enough about it, too, yet somehow it didn't bring any image with it, no more than if I had been told an angel or a fiend was in there. I believed it in the same way one of you might believe there are inhabitants in the planet Mars. I knew once a Scottish sailmaker who was certain, dead sure, there were people in Mars. If you asked him for some idea how they looked and behaved, he would get shy and mutter something about walking on all fours. But if you as much smiled, he would, though a man of 60, offer to fight you. I would not have gone so far as to fight for Kurtz, but I went for him near enough to lie. And so so you can see, I think, that, that even though you know, he's getting some positive reports, he's looking at the environment, he sees the environment is negative, and uh, you know he's not sure what he thinks about Kurtz, but uh, you know I think he's beginning to suspect, and you guys can can agree with me or disagree with me, but I think he's beginning to suspect that people are not telling him the truth about Kurtz, because he says it's almost like he's saying, "Hey, I don't know if I want to fight for Kurtz, but I want to meet Kurtz, right? And right. I'm willing to meet him even if I have to lie." So what do you guys think? Yeah. Oh, I suppose that in the environment in general, when there's profit involved, nobody cares so how much they have to tell the truth. You know, they're, they're more focused on getting that profit and uh, holding their positions. 
and trying to climb the ladder if they can, right? That mm-hmm. they're more willing to lie and they're willing to say whatever whatever the, the people above them need to hear so that they'll stay where they're at and their environment where they're still profiting. Yeah. Yeah, just going off of what Parker says, um, I think that ultimately the whole colonialism uh, and bringing civilization to the Congo, it was just more of like a front for the Belgians. What they were really after was just the wealth that was in there with the ivory. And uh, you can see how that wealth is just somewhat corrupted a lot of these people. And here you have this man who's upset with Kurtz because he wants the higher position, but at this point it seems like Kurtz is, has the ambition to actually go and take after that uh, position. But here you see Marlowe is getting somewhat of a conflicting view of Kurtz from what he's had from the other two. And I think this just adds to Marlowe's curiosity and what he wants and adds more to making him want to actually go and meet Kurtz. Because you see throughout the rest of the book, it's like, a couple times every single page he's like we're on our way to go see Kurtz our, our destination is to go see Kurtz so he, Kurtz is more or less enveloped in all of his thoughts as he's traveling through the Congo yes I think it's interesting he doesn't get caught up in the ivory Marlowe doesn't you know it's, it's, he sees it I think he sees it as a corruption but but I do think it's interesting uh, you know especially this um this this section here, page thirty nine, it's it's famous. It's even famous in class. Uh, you know, when I teach it in in the uh, sophomore English class, it says, "But I went for him near enough to lie." Now he goes on to say, "You know, I hate to test and can't bear a lie, not because I am straighter than the rest of us, but simply because it appalls me." And so, what does he end up doing to the intended? Yeah, he lies to her <laughs> about. Basically, Kurtz, yeah, uh, Kurtz, right. yeah. 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 So, so you see that he's he's getting. It, it it is amazing. I think, just as human beings, all of us can have our moral front, but we all have our immoral weaknesses too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? We're all masquerades sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we're all but, masquerading. Like like Gabe mentioned at the beginning of his comment, though, the, the ideology behind the, what they were doing is a yeah. way to to accept and and uh and justify what yeah. was going on and yeah. like you say though marlo has different uh sites he has a site set on kurtz but uh yeah. but that's an important point that gabe made too the ideology at work there yeah so so anyway um you know that's uh it's interesting that when you know how he he learns even from the mustache guy you know about kurtz um just slip over the next page maybe i'd better read this statement he says well I went near enough to it by letting the young fool there believe anything he liked to imagine as to my influence in Europe. So that's where this this young you know this young agent um, who's got all the you know the culture um, he was really pumping him about well what is what is your influence in Europe and actually he had none you know it was his aunt that got him the job. He says I became in an instant as much of a pretense as the rest of the bewitched pilgrims. This simply because I had a notion it somehow would be of help to that Kurtz whom at the time I did not see, you understand. He was just a word for me. I did not see the man in the name any more than you do. Do you see him? Do you see the story? Do you see anything? It seems to me I'm trying to tell you a dream making a vain attempt because no relation of a dream can convey the dream sensation that co-mingling of absurdity, surprise, and bewilderment in a tremor of struggling revolt 
The notion of being captured by the incredible, which is of the very essence of dreams. That's a paragraph I feel like I need to meditate on, like, for hours <laughs> to understand what he's really saying there. But, but the thing is, you know, in, in his mind to this point, you know, he, he doesn't ha I mean, it's like Kurtz's paper mache too. There's not, there's no depth. There's no, you know, you couldn't turn Kurtz around and see front side, back side, or two sides. You know, you can't see anything. And it's, it, but, but in some ways it's kind of sad. It looks to me like, and you, you both can agree or disagree with me. It seems like that, uh, you know, he's, he's got this, he's forming this dream of what he thinks Kurtz is. And it, of course, Kurtz is like, what, spectacular. And right. Then, he's then, anything and everything right now. And right. anything that he can imagine, ultimately, because he just has, he hasn't met him. Yeah. And that's what's so exciting about it, too, for, for of course, our, us reading. And yeah. then for, for Marlowe as well, you know, right. he just doesn't know what to expect yet, per se. Yeah. And so now, now here's where the, the, the first narrator jumps in. Notice what he says. He was silent for a while. So this is not Marlowe speaking. So the first, and the first narrator jumps in. He says, um, he goes, he says he was silent for a while. He says, no, it is impossible. It is impossible to convey the life sensation of any given epoch of one's existence. This, this which makes it truth, its meaning, its subtle penetrating essence. It's impossible. We live as we dream, alone. And so, so now that's that's Marlowe came back, you know, because he's quoting quoting him there. So, so there, I think that's probably, you know, really deep, deep thoughts by Conrad himself, you know, and, uh, you know, he came from a very, uh, his father was, you know, a poet, very much a romantic, you know, and you can see that his, even his father's influence on Conrad's writing there. All right. So, uh, um, anyway, let's, let's go on now, um. And do you have anything else you want to say right there, either one of you? Uh, no, I remember reading "We Live as We Dream" alone and kind of glossing over it because I, I remember thinking, "Oh, that's pretty deep." But yeah. <laughs> but I was also wondering how much I agreed with it, and uh, I just haven't developed enough thoughts on it yet to, to yeah. give an honest comment. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I know that um, you know I have an advantage of being you know married to one woman for it's going to be forty. 47 years this year I think maybe 48 I better be careful I have to count this <laughs> <laughs> thankfully she's not here today <laughs> but anyway we have you know I don't dream alone we both have dreams you know we have dreams together we we do have dreams alone as well right but um, you know I think God did make us to want to dream you know to to use our imaginations to I mean, if you think about God and, and his, the fact that he's such a great creator, he had to dream things. He had to think things. He had to plan it all out. I mean, just look at the human body. It's one of the most incredible machines ever built. Right. And it, yeah. it, it lives. And, the, and there's really there's nothing about his plan that, that, that goes along with the idea that we do things alone, that it's yeah. all no, you know, solo right. riding. It's not like that. It's that's building. Right. It's going right. to be family. All right. family oriented. That's exactly right. Yep. And so, so anyway, but I think that's, that's a, just a part of, you know, Satan's world and what he's done to humanity. So anyway, um, 
I think at the top of page 41, I wanted to talk there. It says, and one comes out here, you conceive, it is not to gaze at the moon. Mr. Kurtz was a universal genius, but even a genius would find it easier to work with adequate tools, meaning intelligent men. So, so I mean, to me, that's a, that's a pretty, I mean, almost all the statements about Kurtz is that he's a universal genius. And the, the thing is, you know, remember the whole idea behind the the the, uh, the company is to bring society. But but notice, uh, it, it just shows what a failed philosophy that was. It it it, curl, it calls Kurtz a genius, but it's be easier for him to work if he had adequate tools, meaning intelligent men. So what are they saying about the natives? Although they're uned- uneducated, they're uneducated, and what else are they? What else is he saying there? Basically, they're not intelligent enough to what to, to receive be educated, right, right? Or to receive yeah. culture, right? And uh, you know, so in other words, you know, uh, it, it's like these people that have these these great ideals about Kurtz. You know, they think you know he's failing, not because he's failing; it's because. The people he's trying to help are failing, and so, so that's like saying everything is Trump's fault. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, hey, he's not there to pick on anymore. Mm, right. Know? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> they'll find a way, though. <laughs> I mean, it'll still be Trump's fault. All right. Uh, uh, so, so there's another line about Kurtz is that that he's a universal genius. Um, now let's. Uh, uh, let's go on. Let's see. Let's go on to page forty-five now. And um, there's some there's some more things in there. But I just we're going to have a ladies' panel come up here pretty quick, and uh, so I, we have to save some things for them, you know, or they'll be they'll be very upset with me. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's here's some more information about um, uh, Kurtz. Now it says here um, that this is. Um, where I think uh, Marlowe is trying to kind of defend himself, and uh, he's he's really trying to tell us he's not that much interested in Kurtz, when really I don't think that's true at all. Uh, at the top of that page, he talks about exploring. So this devoted band called itself the El Dorado Exploring Expedition. I believe they were sworn to secrecy. Their talk, however, was a talk of sordid buccaneers. It was reckless without hardihood, greedy without audacity, cruel without courage. There was not an atom of foresight of serious intention in the whole batch of them, and they did not seem aware these things wanted for the work of the world. To tear treasure out of the bowels of the land was their desire, with no more moral purpose at the back of it than there is in the burglars breaking into a safe who paid the expenses of the noble enterprise, I don't know, but the uncle of our manager was leader of that lot." And so, so there, I think um, uh, Conrad is uh, really making a, sta- a statement about colonialism again. That they're just wanting to gut the land, and it says, uh, um, you know, that they were they were like uh, pirates or treasure hunters, and they, they didn't care about the culture. They didn't care about educating anybody. And of course, we we know that uh, King Leopold just just had a you know a rapacious view of the land, and just he did. They just took everything out that they could and millions died millions of people died 
says, in the exterior, he resembled a butcher in a poor neighborhood, and his eyes had a look of sleepy cunning. He carried uh, his fat paunch with ostentation on his short legs, and during the time his gang infested the station, spoke to no one but his nephew. So this is the manager of the station. You could see these two roaming about all day long with their heads close together in an everlasting confab. I had given up worrying myself about the rivets. One capacity—he needed rivets for the to repair the ship, his steamship. One capacity of that kind of folly is more limited than you would suppose. I said, "Hang," and let things slide. I had plenty of time for meditation, and now and then I would give some thought to Kurtz. I wasn't very interested in him. No, still I was curious to see whether this man who had come out equipped with moral ideas of some sort, would climb to the top after all, and how he would set about his work when there. And so, so uh, here, um, you know, he's, he's, his curiosity is really being piqued now about Kurtz. And notice, uh, you know, we've gone through all these descriptions about him. Now, supposedly, he has these great moral ideas. And so... But, uh, you know, as we'll find out, Kurtz's main goal is ivory. Everybody's main goal there now is ivory. And so, so anyway, I think that's, uh, that's uh, uh, you know, really kind of interesting. All right. Um, when, when we get to page 46 and 47, this is all the discussion about, um, between the manager and the nephew, this is the discussion about Kurtz. And uh, what can we say about them and Kurtz? How do they feel about Kurtz? Well, they don't like him that much, <laughs> to put it short. <laughs> they don't like him at all. They're not a big yeah. fan of Kurtz. No. Because he's doing so well. Yeah, that's the problem. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, you, you'd think that they would be happy that he's getting so much ivory. But they're not. Why aren't they? Because it makes them look bad. Because it makes them look bad. They're <laughs> envious. You know, they're envious of the guy. It says, uh, uh, I, I think this is interesting. Uh, you know, there's great dissatisfaction with Kurtz between the, the, the manager and the nephew. He goes on to say, one evening I was lying flat on the deck of my steamboat, which wasn't going anywhere, by the way. <laughs> he said, I heard voices approaching. And there were the nephew and the uncle strolling along the bank. I laid my head on my arm and had nearly lost myself in a doze when somebody said in the ear as if it were, I am as harmless as a little child, but I don't like to be dictated to. <laughs> so, so, so this is the manager and the nephew. They're beginning their rant about um, Kurtz. He says, am I the manager or am I not? I was ordered to send him there. It's incredible. I became aware that the two were standing on the shore alongside the forepart of the steamboat just below my head. I, I did not move. It did not occur to me to move. I was sleepy. Oh, come on. He wanted to hear what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> it is unpleasant, grunted the uncle. He has asked the administration to be he he has asked the administration to be sent there, said the other, with the idea of showing what he could do. And I was instructed accordingly. Look at the influence that man must have. Is it not frightful? They both agreed it was frightful, then made several bizarre remarks. Make rain and fine weather. One man, the council, by the nose. Bits of absurd sentences that got better of my drowsiness, so that I had pretty near the whole of my wits about me when the uncle said, 
The climate may do away with this difficulty for you. He is alone there. Yes, answered the manager. He sent his assistant down the river with a note to me in these terms. Clear this poor devil out of the country. and Don't bother sending more of that sort. I'd rather be alone than have that kind of, or the kind of men you can dispose of with me. It was a more than a year ago. Can you imagine such impudence? Anything since then, asked the other hoarsely. Ivory, joked the, jerked the nephew. Lots of it. Prime sort. Lots. Most annoying from him. And with that question, the heavy rumble invoice was the reply fired out so as to speak. Then silence. They had been talking about Kurtz. So, uh, so here they're not real happy with Kurtz. And it looks like he's doing really well. So uh, uh, notice Marlowe's effect here there. He's really paying attention. So he, he heard enough. Now he wasn't drowsy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I was brought awake by this time, uh, but lying perfectly at ease, remained still, having no inducement to change my position. How did that ivory come all this way, growled the elder man, who seemed very vexed. The other explained that it had come with a fleet of canoes in charge of an English half-caste clerk Kurtz had with him, that Kurtz had apparently intended to return himself, the station being by that time bare of goods and stores, but after coming 300 miles, had suddenly decided to go back, which he started to do alone in a small dugout with four paddlers, leaving the half-caste to continue down the river with the ivory. The two fellows there seemed astounded at anybody attempting such a thing. They were at a loss for an adequate motive. As to me, I seemed to see Kurtz for the first time. It was a distinct glimpse, the dugout, four paddling savages, and the lone white man turning his back suddenly on the headquarters, on relief, on thoughts of home, perhaps, setting his face toward the depths of the wilderness, towards his empty and desolate station. I did not know the motive. Perhaps he was just simply a fine fellow who stuck to his work for its own sake. His name, you understand, had not been pronounced once. He was that man, the half-caste who, as far as I could see, had conducted a difficult trip with great prudence and pluck, was invariably alluded to as that scoundrel. The scoundrel had reported that that man had been very ill and had recovered imperfectly. The two below me moved away within a few paces and strolled back and forth at some little distance, I heard. Military post. Doctor. 200 miles. Quite alone now. Unavoidable. Delays. Nine months. No news. Strange rumors. They approached again, just as the manager was saying. No one, as far as I know, unless a species of wandering trader, a, pestil a pestilential fellow, snapping ivory from the natives, who was it they were talking about now? I gathered in snatches that this was some man supposed to be in Kurtz's district, of whom the manager did not approve. We will not be free from unfair competition till one of these fellows is hanged, for an example, he said. Certainly, grunted the other, get him hanged. Why not? Anything, anything can be done in this country. That's what I say. Nobody here, you understand, here can endanger your position. And why? You stand the climate, you outlast them all. The danger is in Europe, but there before I left, I took care to. They moved off and whispered, then their voices rose again. The extraordinary series of delays is not my fault. I did my best. The fat man sighed, very sad, 
and the pestiferous absurdity of his talk continued the other he bothered me enough when he was here each station should be like a beacon on the road towards better things a center for trade of course but for all but but also for your humanizing improving instructing he wants to be a manager no here he got choked by excessive indignation and i lifted my head the least bit i was surprised to see how near they were right under me so so anyway there's a big discussion about what what they really think about kurtz and uh they're just jealous of his position right and and you know i think it's remarkable you get this sense of of invincibility about kurtz like he's just untouchable he's this he's this great uh you know uh he can't be superseded by anybody else and then as you continue going you see it's just the opposite it's just the opposite from everything that everybody else thinks about him yeah it's remarkable how it unfolds that way I think I think it is unique, though, that I'm not disagreeing with you, but I do think it's amazing how much power he has over the natives. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's that's like right. a god to them, and they worship him. You know, and so so obviously, you know, Kurtz does have a lot of power. Right. And, and I think even the evidence of they're upset with him, they can't touch him. They can't get rid of him. So he must have, it's got to be the ivory that gives him the power with the company at back in Europe. Right. Know. So, yep. yeah. So go ahead, Dave. Anything else? That just to add on to that, like he's bringing in the ivory, he's bringing in a lot of money for the company. So why would they do anything to get rid of him at that point? So, right. Right. So anyway, well, as this is this true story, every, every time <laughs> <laughs> that's all the time we have for today's program. So next time I will feature our women's panel with, a different subject from the heart of dark darkness now you can buy heart of darkness at amazon.com you may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com you may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore and of course you can also check your local library so please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org i love to get those comments and people are responding so so let's start some competition here to get, get some more in here now, you can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.